Ever since sin entered the world, ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, they have been on the run from God. They hid from God. They were afraid of God. They didn't want to return to God immediately. God had to seek them out. God had to seek them out because they were on the run. After they sinned, they tried to fix things themselves. They tried to hide from God. And this has been and still is the natural condition of fallen humanity. We run. Before Christ redeemed us, if you're a Christian, before Christ redeemed you, you were on the run. And if even you have been redeemed, there are times that you start to run. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the Bible describes you as someone on the run, against God, away from God. So it's not surprising, considering humanity's track record, when that we come to meet this man Jonah, we meet a man who's on the run. We meet a man who's on the run. You remember from last week, I trust that Jonah was a prophet, called to speak on behalf of God, and had, in fact, spoken on behalf of God in the past, but now... We come to a situation in Jonah's life where he is no longer willing to submit himself to God's will. And he runs. I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6 to start. We're going to look at this, and I want to show you the portrait of a runaway. I want to show you what it's like to run from God. I want to point out what's happening here. I even want you to see a little bit into the heart of Jonah, the heart of the runaway. And I want you to ask yourself, do I see myself here? You could think of Jonah again like a mirror. And you're, we're going to hold it up and we're going to ask ourselves, do I see myself in Jonah? Do I have in my heart the heart of a runaway? Am I on the run from God? I may not even be thinking that I'm on the run, but we'll also see here in this book that some people are on the run and they don't even realize it. They're completely unaware of the fact that all they're doing is running from God. And I wanted to show you, and as you ask the question, do I mirror Jonah's heart? Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. <clears throat> now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to that great city, and call against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You see this picture of a man who's on the run. You know the background that Nineveh was the capital of the enemy of Israel, the nation of Assyria. Jonah did not want to go there. Obviously, you see, he gets up and he runs away. And I want to spend the next few minutes here talking about what it looks like to run from God. I'm going to give you the picture of the runaway. I'm going to give you the portrait of the runaway. We're going to look at some qualities of the runaway. And as we look at each quality, it is an opportunity for each of us to evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves, are we running away? Am I on the run from God? 
The first and most obvious portrait of the runaway is this. Number one, the runaway disregards God's word. You see that? Right there in the first verses, right there in the first verses, he runs away from God. The runaway disregards God's word. The Lord comes to Jonah. He gives him his word. He speaks to him and he says, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And Jonah arises, same word, and he goes the other direction. Jonah was a prophet. These first words in verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to, is a common formula that prophets, you'll, you'll see in the prophets a lot. You read through the book of Isaiah, you read through Jeremiah, you hear how the prophets speak. It is a common thing for them to say, the word of the Lord came to me. This would have been something common to Jonah, that the word of the Lord had come to him. In fact, we know from 2 Kings 14 that he was a prophet that had made prophecies in the past that had come to pass. This is a prophetic formula. Uh, Much of your Bible is prophecy. Much of the Bible is the writings of the prophets when the words were given to him. And now, uh, Jonah, though previously he had been given a prophecy that he would have really liked to give, if you remember in 2 Kings 14, the prophecy that Jonah was told to give was, hey, Jonah, go tell the nation of Israel that they're going to get more land. Get, they're going to get their land back. We talked about this last week. This was part of God's working in the story of Israel. Up to that time when Jonah was a prophet, one of the messages he was given was to tell the Israelites the good news that they were getting some of their land back. That's the first time we meet Jonah. He's, he's probably a celebrated hero in Israel for giving this great prophecy that everyone would have been excited to hear. And lo and behold, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he's told to go give a message he does not want to give to a people he does not want to give it to. Here's the first thing you got to know about a runaway is they're going to disregard God's word. See, they like God's word insofar as it agrees with them. If the word of God comes to a runaway that seems to agree with some sentiment they have, they'll happily agree with it. But as soon as the word of God comes from Scripture and gives them something that they find disruptive, difficult, They run away from it. They disregard it. They ignore it. I want to notice a few things about God's Word in this little section here. First, notice this. God's Word is disruptive, isn't it? I mean, Jonah's living a happy life here. He had just been given this prophecy that everyone loved. He was probably celebrated. He was probably well-liked. And we don't like disruption. Jonah was probably happy with the way his life was going. And this is true for all of us. Fallen humans, we like to create cozy little lives, comfortable lives. We like to pursue the things that make life easy. And often it is true that God's Word just comes in and shatters our cozy little lives. Isn't that true? Uh, One of the things we realize is that Jonah is under a sovereign God who speaks and has the right and authority to tell Jonah what to do. And Jonah has no right to argue with him. God speaks to Jonah. Jonah must respond. It comes in and disrupts everything. You ever been reading the Bible? And you're really reading it. You're not just going through the words and kind of letting them go in your mind and out. Uh, the other in one ear, out the other. You're, you're actually you're contemplating the implications of what the Bible's saying, and you really get to something. You go, "Wow! If I actually obey that, that's gonna be a big deal in my life. That's gonna change a lot of things. If I live that way, that'll change the way I spend my time. That'll change the way I spend my money. That'll change the way I pursue my career. That'll change the kind of relationships I have. You ever had that experience? God's word is that way." It's disruptive. For those of us who want to continue down a path 
of kind of selfish, self-pursuit of all our cozy comforts in life, if that's just how we want to live, and if we're going to take God's Word seriously, we've got to come to grips with this reality. It is a disruptive book that we read. Jesus is not safe. If you remember the famous line in the Chronicles of Narnia where Susan is hearing about Aslan for the first time, this lion, and she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Is Aslan safe? You remember Beaver's response? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that line. He, he's not safe. Some of us have a Jesus who's way too safe, a scripture that's way too tame, and we read it through the filter of our own sentiments. We let it say only that which we think it should say. And it agrees with us, and we agree with it, and we go on with our happy lives. And yet, I think, if we let the Word of God speak, just like Jonah had to deal with this objective, coming from the outside, Word from God, he had to deal with this, uh, this reality. If we take God's Word that seriously, we say, there's a Word from God coming from the text to me, it calls us out of our comforts, doesn't it? It disrupts us. To follow Jesus is not safe. He calls us to total commitment. He calls us to take up our cross. He calls us to extravagant generosity. He calls us to self-sacrifice. He calls us to pleasure-denying love toward others. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. That's disruption. Jesus is disruptive. And the moment you say, I repent, I'm going to give my life to following Jesus, you're at that same moment and you're saying to Jesus, disrupt my life. Get in my grill, Jesus. Show me all I need to see so that I can repent, so I can turn, so I can conform to who you are. If God's Word never disrupts your life, you might be in a very precarious position. See, one of the ways you know that you've made God in your own image is that God's Word will never contradict you. That's one of the ways you know you're not actually worshiping the true God, is that God's Word just comes and affirms all the things you already believe. You read it, you filter it through the lens of your bias, and you go, yep, that's what God is. I'm glad God keeps patting me on the back. Every time I read the Word, that's not the God of the Bible you're worshiping because God's Word will come and disrupt you just like it did to Jonah, just like it has done for Christians through the millennia. God's Word comes, it contradicts our self-centered lifestyle and it calls us to something outside of ourselves. I want you to notice how disruptive it is, but also I want you to notice from this text how clear it is. You see how clear the Word is here? Jonah, I'm talking to you. Arise, go to the great city, Nineveh. Call out against it. Their evil has come against me. There's nothing unclear about this. There's nothing mysterious about this. Uh, Jonah didn't go, um, Nineveh? I'd never heard of Nineveh. Where's, where's Nineveh? I don't know how to get to Nineveh. Uh, is there a map, God, that you can give me how to get to Nineveh? All of this was very clear. Jonah knew exactly where Nineveh was. He knew exactly what nation it was located in. He knew exactly what the directions were for him to do. He had been taught. It was clear. God's word came to him with clarity. And Jonah knew and Jonah ran. I think one of the great obstacles of obedience sometimes, especially in our day, is that we hide under this excuse that the Bible's just not all that clear about what I should do. Clarity of Scripture. Theologians call it the perpiscuity of Scripture. Is the Bible clear or is it not clear? When God spoke with Jonah, he was pretty clear. And when God speaks in his word to us today through the, through the preaching of the word and through the text of Scripture, God is clear, is he not? And sometimes we can say, well, is God really clear on this? I don't know. I'm not quite sure. God has spoken. There are mysteries, yes. Let's admit that there are mysteries, a, a God who exists beyond our finite minds that we cannot grasp. But when God has called us, what He has called us to, there's high levels of clarity. And we can't wiggle out from obedience by saying, well, God wasn't clear. Jonah couldn't. It was too clear. We can't either. But this is an attack on God's Word 
in our day. Let me just talk a little bit about how this sometimes happens in our day. This, this attack on the clarity of Scripture enables so many people to just walk in disobedience. Uh, people believe it's actually impossible to know what God really meant by any of the things He said. And so they are uh, stalled in their willingness to obey. The mission of the church is crippled because everyone's going, oh, I'm not quite sure what it is anyway. Everyone has a bunch of different ideas, so we can't really know. Here's some of the ways God's Word is attacked. Listen to this. First, uh, God is too mysterious. You ever heard this one? God is so high and lifted up and lofty and great and glorious, we could never really know what He's like. He, we could never capture who He is. We can't put Him in a box. He can't communicate in human language. Even if we read in human language in the Scriptures, they uh, don't fully understand. We can't ever really understand who He is can't be captured in human language. Of course, ignoring the fact that God has chosen to reveal Himself in human language. Some people attack the clarity of God's Word by stating that, well, we can't ever know it for ourselves. We need popes and priests and bishops and church tradition to interpret it for us. No person can ever really know God's Word on their own. It's not that clear. We need some more spiritual people to do it. That was the Roman Catholic Church for hundreds only teaching from the Latin, even though nobody could understand it. When William Tyndale finally translated the Bible into the common vernacular, they burnt him on the stake. But he was declaring, uh, we don't need a pope. We don't need a priest. The Bible's clear. We've got the Holy Spirit. We have the revealed Word of God. We have the Scriptures. We can know it. There's another way that sometimes of God's Word is attacked. There's too many interpretations. We can never know what God really meant by this. We can never really know. Everyone has a different idea. So we can never really know and the hands are thrown up into the air and we all say, I don't know what God really said. Friends, we have to note this. Get this. If we are saying God's not clear, we're making a statement about the character of God Himself. This is about God's character. Is He able to communicate to His people or is He not? We good? We on? Good. Authority of God's Word. He says arise and go. Jonah needs to arise and go. Sometimes the Word of God comes to us. We read it. It's so crystal clear. And we sit around waiting for some sign. It's like the Word of God says do it. That's enough. I remember in, in high school ministry having uh, conversations with students who were thinking about getting baptized. The, the command to get baptized is clear throughout the New Testament. This is what you do. You follow Christ, you repent and believe, you get baptized. And I remember on more than one occasion hearing this something along these lines. I'm just waiting for the sign that I should go get baptized. I'm just, just waiting for when it feels right. You know, there's, there's got to be a good you know, timing for this. Just waiting for that prompt. If there's a verse, you don't need to wait for a voice from heaven. You don't need to wait for an internal prompt. This is what God's Word is. Arise, go. Jonah needs to do what? Arise and go. Immediate obedience. We have sometimes said to our kids, delayed obedience is disobedience. Let this be a lesson to us as a church and to you individually as a Christian. When you know something to be true, when you are clear what the command is, act immediately. Obey immediately because that's what God's Word demands. God is authoritative. He comes into our lives through His written Word. He disrupts us. He speaks with clarity. He speaks with, speaks with authority. And we must obey. We must obey. There's no options for the Christian. We must immediately obey. Are you letting God's clear, authoritative word disrupt your life? Or are you more like a Pharisee who knew, who read it, who studied it, and impact the heart and never let them change, never change them from the inside out? What does a runaway do? A runaway disregards God's word. A runaway runs away from the Word of God either by casual indifference. A runaway might be so busy that 
You don't have any time for God's Word. The runaway is somehow, some way, going to set aside God's Word so they can follow their own agenda. And it either will be high-handed runaway rebellion like Jonah, or crowding it out with all the busyness of our lives so that we don't feel any obligation to submit our lives to it. Are you running from God's Word? You're going to see in these Scriptures that Jonah is so busy. All these verbs describing what he does. He arises, he flees, he finds a boat, he goes down to Joppa, he pays a fare. It's almost like the text is saying Jonah is filling his life with all these other activities except obedience. I think that's probably Satan's cleverest ploy to get people to ignore God's Word. Oh, we want to obey it. You're so busy. Disregard of God's Word. It's the mark of a runaway. It's the mark of a runaway. Now this first and initial mark of disregard of God's Word never remains isolated. It leads to more marks of a runaway. In fact, this mark of the disregard of God's Word will grow and blossom into other ways that we run from God. And I want to notice the second mark of the runaway that we're going to see in Jonah's life. Here it is. The runaway becomes numb to his own sin. Numb. I want you to notice this. He does arise. God says arise, verse 2. Verse 3, Jonah does arise and he flees to Tarshish. Uh, that's the opposite direction of where he's called to go. It says that he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's marked twice in verse 3. He's going to Tarshish to from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. Joppa was a port town probably 50 miles from where Jonah was. It's a long walk. A few days would have taken him to get there. He goes down to uh, find a ship. He's looking for a ship that's getting as far away from his call as he can get. He finds a place going to Tarshish. Tarshish was a Phoenician colony on the Atlantic coast of southern Spain. So if you know your geography, Jonah was on the inside of the Mediterranean Sea. And he wants to go as far all the way out of the Mediterranean Sea to the coast of Spain. That is literally the end of the world in the times like that's that's as far as the known world gets is going to Tarshish he is running away from it says twice the presence of the Lord now what are we to make of him thinking he can run from the presence of the Lord now this is actually an interesting phrase and it doesn't mean I think what we might think it means at first glance it doesn't mean that he's trying to escape the omnipotent all-seeing all-knowing eye of God it's not what he's doing in fact when the prophets spoke, this is true of Elijah in the Old Testament, when they spoke of being ready and prepared to do whatever God asked them to do, to obey however God asked them to obey, they would come before God in prayer and they would talk about God as in whose presence I stand. Elijah said this when he was ready to give the prophecy, God in whose presence I stand. It's like saying, God, I'm your servant. I'm here. Give me the message. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'm in your presence. I'm ready to go. Where do you want me to go? And so when it says that Jonah's fleeing from the presence of God, I don't think that means Jonah thought he could get away from God's eye. I think this is expression that is to be seen as Jonah's decommissioning. He is self-terminating his own prophetic office. He does not want to be a prophet anymore. He goes, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to the evil nation of Syria. They don't deserve me, my presence. I don't want to risk my life. In fact, we also know he doesn't want them to see any mercy in chapter 4, verse 2. That's why he doesn't want to go. He says, I'm out. Count me out. Not going to do it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm done being a prophet I'm not going to stand in your presence and say, here I am, send me anymore. I'm out. You're meant to read this and be shocked at what's happening here. A prophet who is meant to be speaking for God is saying, I'm tapping out now. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm no longer going to honor you, Lord, by obedience. I'm going the other way. And so he rises to flee 
Look at what's happening. He goes down to Joppa. That's a 50-mile walk. That's several days. That's wasted, that's wasted time. He's getting up to run. He's looking for a boat. It's wasted energy. It says that he finally gets down to Joppa. He finds a ship. He, it says he paid the fare. That's wasted money. Friends, sin will take you to places you do not want to go, and it will cost you much more than you think. It's causing him to waste his life. Waste his energy, waste his time, waste his money. He's doing stupid things, isn't he? He's on the run from God. He's wasting his life away doing stupid things. And this is what sin will cause you to do. It'll make you dumb. It'll make you stupid. It'll make you make terrible decisions. There's always a cost. The commitment to your sin. If you have sin in your life that you're committed to and you're not turning from, it'll cost you. It'll cost you, for one, your joy, the joy of obedience and walking with God. It'll cost you relationships with people you love. I've seen cost people, I've seen sin cost people their marriage, cost people their career, cost people their relationship with their kids. Sin will do this to you. Sin is a cruel master that will demand everything from you and give you nothing in return. And I want you to notice this. This is happening in Jonah's life. He's wasting it. And listen, he is completely numb. He's numb to this. Look at what he does. There's a storm in verse 4 upon the sea so big that even these seasoned veteran mariners are frightened. They're afraid, verse 5. They cry out to their gods. They're working to try to figure out a way to save themselves. Look at the end of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. His life's on the line and he doesn't care. He sleeps. The mariner's lives are on the line. He doesn't care. He sleeps. Obedience to God, obviously, that's on the line. He doesn't care. He spent days walking from his home to get to the port so he could leave. This wasn't some momentary lapse of judgment. This is resolute disobedience. And friends, he is now numb. He's numb. The alarm of the conscience, he kept snoozing that thing. I mean, I wonder on that 50-mile walk from his home down to Joppa what he was doing. What was going on in his mind? I wonder if he was just saying, nope, 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 I'm not doing it, nope. And maybe there was even an inner tinge of guilt or conscience that's starting to tell him, hey, you you shouldn't do this, you should obey the Lord. And he's going, nope, nope, nope. By the time he gets to the ship, by the time he gets out the sea, he is numb and he's asleep. And these lives are in danger and he could care less. He cares only for himself at this point. This is where sin will take you. There's no more tortured conscience here. He seems to have perfect peace running away from God, doesn't he? He's asleep. The pagans are are, are the ones praying. The pagans are the ones who are more devout than him, crying out to their gods. This Jonah, meant to be a prophet, is fast asleep in perfect peace in the bottom of a ship. The alarm of his conscience is no longer sounding. He is not in any great inward turmoil for his sin. You know, sometimes it does happen the way that that a person will sin in a way like this, like Jonah, high-handedly in rebellion, and they will feel guilty. Maybe that has been you. You'll feel the sense of conviction, and it'll make you feel so guilty that you need to do something about this, and there'll be repentance and faith and turning and change. But this isn't always how it happens. Sometimes people head, go headlong in sin and they feel at peace about it. They don't feel bad about it. And the reason is their conscience has been silenced. They haven't let God's Word disrupt them in so long that they just are so detached from God's call in their life that they're numb. They don't feel bad for not aligning uh, their lives with God's Word. They're just going down their own way. 
I've heard of people who have convinced themselves that they're in the will of God as they proceed with a divorce because they feel a lot of peace about it. They feel peace about it. So what if you feel peace about it? If you feel peace about disobeying God's word, there's something wrong. Your heart's feelings are not the arbiters of truth. God's word is truth. And if you live in violation to God's word, it doesn't matter for one second how much peace you feel about it. Because God has spoken. And God seems, or Jonah seems to have a whole lot of peace as he falls asleep in direct defiance to the living God. There's no inward turmoil. He's numb. And if you can go on in sin and not feel any guilt, not feel any shame, not feel any hurt about it, it's not the kind of peace you want. That's the kind of peace that you find in a cemetery. That's the kind of peace that you'll find in a coffin or a morgue. That's not the peace of someone who's alive to Christ. See, this is, this is the worst kind of despair, what Jonah, Jonah is experiencing here. Jonah is not experiencing the despair of sadness. This is the despair of numbness. This is the despair that can feel neither joy nor sorrow. This is the despair that neither hates nor loves. This is a despair that settles into a casual indifference, a carelessness, an emptiness, an exhaustion. No conviction. And he sleeps while lives are on the line. Friends, every Sunday you come to church and hear the Word of God, it aims to disrupt our selfish lives. It aims to convict and change us, doesn't it? And listen, it will always be effective. And for those people who receive the Word of God by faith and allow the Word to confront them and convict them, the Word will be healing and changing and convicting and conforming those people into the likeness of Christ. But for those who come in and week after week let the Word go in one ear and out the other, that receive it with a casual indifference, unwilling to let it shape their lives, it will be hardening. It will be creating a callous. It will eventually make them numb. And so they will be like the people Jesus talked about hearing without hearing. They have ears, but they do not hear. Let me ask you, can you still hear God's Word? Have you tamed it to be something that only agrees with you? Have you become numb to it that you're no longer aware at all of any way that you might be violating it? Are you sensitive to your sin? There's a story of a, a young man who was mocking a preacher. The young man was saying, you, you, you say that unsaved people have this great weight of sin. I don't feel any weight of sin. How heavy is sin? 10 pounds? 50 pounds? 80 pounds? 100 pounds? Mocking the preacher. And the preacher thought for a moment and replied, if you laid a 400 pound weight on a corpse, would it feel anything? And the young man says, of course not. It's dead. And the preacher then pointed right back at the young man and said, the person who doesn't know Christ is equally dead. And though the load of sin is great, he feels none of it. Friends, beware. If you can continue in rebellion and sin, and even the respectable sins that we all like to overlook, if we can bear those in our lives without feeling any sense of conviction, may we never become numb to the Word of God. But that's the mark of a runaway. That we disregard God's Word first, and over time then we become numb to it, callous to it. I want to talk now about the third portrait. 
The third picture of the runaway is the runaway becomes prayerless. Verses 4 to 6 are meant to show a, a stark irony. The, the Lord throws the wind, verse 4. The tempest is on the sea. The ship is threatening to break up. Verse 5, look at this. The mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. What are the, what are the mariners doing? These pagans. They're praying to their gods that they think exist. They're working for the good of everyone on the boat, trying to bring it to uh, harbor, to be able to bring it to a place where it can be saved. And Jonah, the supposed man of God, to represent God and speak for God, is asleep. He's the only one not praying. I mean, you're meant to read this. If you're a Jew picking up Jonah for the first time and you're reading these first six verses, you're going, what? The irony is so prevalent right there in front of you. You've got to see what the writer's trying to communicate. Look, he is disobeying God. He is running away from the Word of God. He's gone numb that he doesn't even feel it. He just falls asleep. And now he is not praying, though everyone else is. The one who knows the true God. The one who's supposed to cry out to God. The one who knows what God is like as a God who answers prayer is the one who's not praying. This is always the mark of a runaway and it's something you need to pause and evaluate your own life. Do you pray? Do you really pray? I'm sure, I'm sure you got your, your meals that you pray during those. I'm sure you pray when life gets hard, you got issues coming up, you pray. But do you pray in response to hearing the Word of God that is a high calling on your life and you say, God, I can't do this, I need help. God, I can't do this, I need your power. I wonder how different the story of Jonah would have been if God had given him his word, arise, go to Nineveh, and Jonah, instead of running away, what if he right then and there fell on his knees and cried out, God, this is hard. This is really hard. I can't do this. I don't have the resources to do this. I don't love these people enough. I'm not compassionate enough. I don't share your heart like I should. I confess this. Now help me, empower me, strengthen me to go do what you've called me to do. I think Jonah would be a different book if that's what Jonah had done. But he doesn't. He busies himself with activity and runs away from God. And let me ask you, if we as a church receive the Word of God with regularity, with this kind of indifference going, yeah, yeah, this is all good, I agree with this, and then walk out these doors with no intent to apply or to obey, then what we're really doing is acting more like Jonah who gets busy with all these other things in life and never actually seeks to obey the Word that God has given him. Rather, I think when we hear the Word of God, what should we do? We say, God, I don't have it. I can't do this. I don't have the resources. I'm bankrupt here. And you've called me to love my neighbor. You've called me to love my wife like Christ loves the church. You've called me to care for my children. This is a call of love that I can't possibly muster up in my own strength. And so we pray. But the runaway hears the Word of God and doesn't ask God for help doesn't pray, doesn't cry out, there's no desperation. And so he just tries to go on his life without seeking the Lord's empowerment. Do you do that? Just try to go on with life thinking you could do it on your own in your own strength? Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd -Jones was very insightful when he said, prayer is not only the highest activity of the soul, it is the ultimate test of our true spiritual condition. 
If prayer is the ultimate test of our true spiritual condition, what does your prayer life say about you? Does it reveal anything about you that you need to confess to God and ask for help to change? Are you dependent on Him, really, for all the things He's called you to do in this life? He's called us to obedience to His Word. We must not respond with casual affirmation that the Word is true. Rather, every time Scripture calls us to obedience, He is inviting us into the impossible. In other words, He is calling us to do something that which is humanly impossible. He is calling us to do that which we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the only right response to the Word of God as we're understanding it is confession, repentance, and crying out to God that we can't do this in our flesh. Only you could do it by your Spirit in me. Do you pray that way? The runaway doesn't. The runaway doesn't have any brokenness over sin, so there's no desperate cry of repentance. The runaway feels no concern for the lives of the people around him, like Jonah, no concern for the lives of the sailors, so there's no pleading for their deliverance. There's no wonder at the amazing grace and mercy of God, so of course there's no adoration and praise in Jonah's life. He's numb, and of course he wouldn't then pray. But the runaway, there's a a fourth portrait. The runaway loses sight of a deep sense of destiny. The runaway loses sight of his purpose, the sense of destiny that God intends to give to all his people. You were made to live with purpose. You were made to understand in a real sense, I'm here, born to these parents, with these friends, at this church, at this time, for such a time as this. There's a purpose for me here. There are good works that God has prepared for me to walk in that He has established beforehand. This is not to be sensational. This is reality. This is something that God's people throughout the ages have always grasped that God has a plan for my life. He intends to use me. And we were made out to live out of this big sense that God must be glorified. He has a plan to do that in redemption. He has called me into it, and I have a role to play. Sinclair Ferguson writes, There appears to be a direct relationship between our usefulness in the service of God and the sense of destiny that we have. That whatever happens, we are doing the work to which God has called us. I think we're useful when we know deep down it's a conviction in our bones. We know God intends to use me here. God intends to use my gifts, whatever He's given me. God's intended to use these relationships that He's put in my lap. God intends to use me. I'm not a nobody just kind of flowing through life that God intends to just, uh, not that person. I can use other people, but not that person. God intends to use all His children for His glory in the plan of redemption. But what happens to the runaway because of the disregard of God's Word, because of the numbness, because of the lack of prayer and connection with God and communion, your sense of calling just drains away. Your sense of purpose is just forgotten. You forget that you've been called to the greatest privilege in the universe to serve the living God, to spread His Word through all nations, taking risks for His glory. This is what we have all been called to. Groundbreaking, soul-stretching, life-giving obedience to Jesus Christ. There's a real sense in which we all have a destiny. That is a purpose God has called us to a calling that He has welcomed us into. And now we, following Him, are to live in light of this great purpose and then to pour our lives out for that purpose He's given us in His Word. But the runaway forgets. The runaway sleeps. 
And we can skip down to verse 12, the runaway. Jonah said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He has so lost touch what God had called him to do. He is now wishing to be tossed into a raging ocean. He has no understanding that God could possibly use him anymore. No desire to be used by God anymore. He doesn't know there's going to be a fish appointed. This is the death wish. You could say this is a suicidal wish here. Kill me, he says. This is what happens when the runaways keep running. Lost sight of any purpose in their lives. And here's the last portrait. Fifth, the runaway rejects God's heart of grace. God says, arise and go. He doesn't go. You know why he doesn't go? Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. This is why I didn't go, basically, is what he's saying. Uh, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. His runaway was a runaway from the heart of God, wasn't it? He was rejecting God's heart of grace. And this is what happens when we run away from God is we become utterly different from God. Where God would have compassion, we would withhold it. Where God would give grace, we hold it back. Jonah would rather see Nineveh judged than saved. And I wonder if you have a friend or a neighbor or a family member that you would rather see judged than saved. Maybe forgiveness is within your grasp to offer and you withhold it because you don't think they deserve it. Is there someone in your life that you would rather see judged than saved and forgiven? Is there a grudge you're holding against someone because you would rather see them hurt than see them restored? These are all signs that we've begun to run away from God and we are then rejecting God's heart of grace. See, God is more gracious than we are. God is gracious to the worst of the worst. God is willing to extend forgiveness of sins. God is kind and gentle and slow to anger. Are we? The runaway rejects God's heart. Are you a runaway? If you're a runaway, maybe all your life has been a runaway, or maybe you've come to church this morning feeling like a runaway, maybe there's an area of your life that you've been running away. Let's stop talking about Jonah for a little bit and talk about another man who was born about three miles from where Jonah grew up. This man was not defiant when the Word of God came to him, he never once ran away from it. He was the perfect man. His name was Jesus Christ. He was God incarnate to enter His creation to come and save runaways. All humanity is on the run from God. And God enters creation in Jesus Christ to run after sinners who are running from Him. He goes after them. He perfectly obeys all that God called him to do. He then obeys God to the point of sacrificing himself on the cross to pay for the sins of the runaways. To pay for their sins in full. And he absorbs in himself the wrath of the Father that should have been toward the runaways. He rises from the dead. He conquers sin. 
And as Lord of the universe, resurrected King of kings, he now invites all to repent and to trust him for forgiveness of sins. And he and he alone can heal the heart of the runaway. He and he alone can change your heart from the inside out and turn you so that you're no longer running toward sin, but you're running toward him. He and he alone can do that. And if you sense in your heart even to the smallest degree that you're a runaway, that there are areas of your, of your life where you're running away. The answer is not to try to, in and of your own strength, turn and become a better person. You fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I can't save myself. I will keep running. I will keep running and I will keep running unless you save me. You must change my heart from the inside out. And if you don't do that, I will keep running. And we fall at his feet and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. You're all I've got. You're all I've got. If you've been running, let me invite you to come to the one who loves to save runaways. He is risen from the dead. He is available this morning and He invites you to trust Him. You can fall at His feet and He will extend mercy and He will change your heart. You will not run away in the same way ever again and He will bring you home and He will make sure that He makes it happen because He will then indwell you by His Holy Spirit. And He'll guide you home to an eternal life forever in heaven. Come to Jesus Christ if you're runaway. This is a lesson for all runaways. Jesus is our only hope. Apart from Him, we run away. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word that comes It's disruptive. It's sometimes a little hard to hear. But Lord, it is what we need to see the, the road that sin will take us down if we don't turn to Christ. And so Lord, we pray again for those who need to be convicted, they will be convicted but Lord, also that those who need to see Christ as the ever-present and willing and able Savior, I pray that you'd make that so clear right now, that Jesus loves to save runaways. I pray that runaways would come home. In Jesus' name, amen.